The verse that we'll want to consider together tonight is Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Just one verse, Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. On August 16th, 1977, a great king died. I'm, of course, referring to the king, and that is Elvis Presley. (laughs) Presley had won the hearts of untold millions as the king of rock and roll. He produced hundreds of songs and sold millions of records around the world. And sadly, in 1977, at the age of 42, he died of a heart attack that many believe was caused by an overdose of drugs. After Presley's death, a fan named Dennis Wise was interviewed by the Boston Globe. Uh, Dennis Wise had made a career as an Elvis impersonator, and uh, Mr. Wise believes himself to be the greatest uh, Elvis impersonator ever, and the greatest Elvis fan ever. He even had his face, now listen to this, he had his face lifted by a plastic surgeon so that he might better resemble Elvis. And he's had his hair contoured to match the style of his departed idol. In that interview with the Boston Globe, this is what Dennis Wise said, quote, Yes, sir, Presley has been an idol of mine since I was five years old. I have every record he ever cut twice over. I have pictures in the thousands, magazines, pillows, t-shirts, figurines, cups, and plates. I have every book I can find about him, some even in Japanese and Chinese. I even have leaves from the lawn of Graceland. In school, when Elvis began to wear white boots, I bought white boots. All the kids called them fruit boots. I saw him in concert every opportunity that came my way. I tried to get close to him every time, but he was always surrounded by too many people. I never really saw him. I mean, really saw him. Sure, I went to concerts, but there was no contact. I even stood on the wall at Graceland over 12 hours once to get a glimpse of him, but I never could get close to him. I never knew him, and he never knew me. All the effort I put into following him, and I never could seem to get close, end quote. If you ask me, Dennis Wise's story is truly tragic, and no part of his story is more tragic than the words... I never could get close to him. I never knew him. He never knew me. Wise's statements and his commitment to Elvis Presley resemble something almost like that of a a worshiper to a deity, don't they? I mean, he followed Elvis around. He bought every sort of uh, piece of memorabilia that he could associate with Elvis Presley. He made every effort to get close to him, to see him. He even 
visited his home and, and stalked Elvis by standing on the walls of Graceland, Elvis's uh, famous mansion, just to get a glimpse of Elvis Presley. It could really truly be said, I don't think Dennis Wise would quibble with this, it could be said that Elvis uh, was his idol, uh, was his icon. And yet, through all this effort of trying to get close to Elvis Presley, to meet him, to know something of his presence, to have a relationship with him. Uh, Through all of this, Dennis Wise never came close to Elvis. He was always inaccessible, surrounded by throngs of people, or uh, covered, shielded from uh, Mr. Wise's eyes by the walls of Graceland. And he never could access uh, his icon, his idol, Elvis Presley. The question I want us to ask tonight is, Is our experience with our God anything similar to Dennis Wise's experience with Elvis Presley? Uh, Can we access our God? If we want to be close to Him, if we want to be near to Him, if we want to find where He is and to be into His presence, are we somehow obstructed by uh, throngs of people? Is there a wall there? Is there a barrier there? Do we have access to our God, or are we in a similar predicament that Mr. Wise was with Elvis Presley? And so I'll ask you, how would you answer this question? Where is God? Where is God? That's a question that the smallest child uh, might ask you. Mommy, Daddy, uh, where is God? Can we meet Him? Can we see Him? Can we talk to Him? Where does God live? Well, our text tonight actually answers this question. It answers this question by saying that God dwells in two places. Let's look again at Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where is God? According to our text, he dwells in two places, and I want to consider these two places as the two parts of my outline tonight. God dwells in two places. The first, our text says, is the high and holy place, and the second is with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Would you like to find God? Would you like to be near to him? Would you like to access him? Do you ever feel far off from God, like He's somehow inaccessible, like you can't get near to Him, that you're always standing on the outside looking in, uh, similar to how Dennis Wise stood on the outside of Graceland, just trying to get a glimpse of Elvis Presley? Do you ever feel that way in your relationship to God? Well, let's consider this text and see what we could glean from it and if we can access our God. So first of all, let's look at the first place where we're told that God dwells, and that is in the high holy place. Uh, When theologians wish to describe God's existence above and separate from us, uh, that is his height, his holiness, his majesty. When theologians want to describe that, uh, they use a word uh, that is transcendence. God's transcendence, it's an attribute of God. Uh, God's transcendence is his greatness, his bigness, his majesty, his glory, his, his distance from us. That is God's transcendence. This conveys the idea that God is beyond us, that God is in some way unknowable, that we can't exactly understand Him, that His thoughts are greater and higher than our thoughts, and that He is in some sense uh, inaccessible, separate, in a mysterious way beyond us. That is God's transcendence. 
And this idea of God's transcendence is a theme that's developed and expounded all throughout the Bible. I could literally turn to dozens and dozens of texts. I'm just going to read off four. You don't need to turn there. These are brief texts that capture God's transcendence. One is found in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Job 11, verse 7. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you feel the refrain of these texts? God is great. God is beyond us. God is unfathomable. God is incomprehensible. God is unknowable. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are beyond finding out who can approach the God of these texts. What is man? What is woman? Uh, What is a boy or a girl that God would be mindful of them? He's so high. He's so lofty. He's so transcendent and majestic. How can we hope to access God like this? This is the God of the Bible. Now pause for a moment, and I'll just ask you to reflect on how far the ideas of these texts are from the mind of the average contemporary worshiper of God. Just the average man or woman professing Christian who walks into a church today. I don't know men's hearts, I'm just asking you. Are the thoughts of the transcendent God who is unthinkable, who is unknowable, who is beyond us, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is majestic and glorious and all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, do those thoughts characterize the way in which most people worship God today? Consider this quote from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer penned these words, 50 years ago in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and I contend that these words are even more relevant today than they were then in Tozer's day. Tozer writes, listen to this, a condition has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. For with our loss, the sense of the majesty of God has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to meet God in adoring silence. 
modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who could appreciate or experience or know the meaning of the words, be still and know that I am God. These words mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this period of the 20th century, end quote. And I'll just add an addendum to that. Uh, Does this characterize the disposition of the self-confident, bustling, careless, casual, and carefree worshiper in this period of the 21st century? Do these thoughts of religious awe and majesty and transcendence characterize your heart? When you came here tonight, and as we centered our hearts on the Bible, and as we read a moment ago from Revelation chapter 5, were notions of awe and glory and majesty and splendor. Did those sorts of things characterize your thoughts of God? Or did you come into this place bustling, self-confident, casual, careless, and carefree? Is your heart marked by lofty thoughts? About God, Does this expre- describe your experience with God on a daily basis, and from week to week in worship? Well, we have this idea in our text in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Where is God? Where can He be found? He is found in the place of His transcendent glory. Look again at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. There are three major features or ideas we're given in this text to govern our thinking about God's transcendence. First of all, we see that God is high. Secondly, we see that God is eternal, that He inhabits eternity. Thirdly, we see that God is holy, His name is holy, and He dwells in the high and holy place. Let's consider these three uh, characteristics of God's transcendence briefly. God is high, God is eternal, God is holy. First of all, God is high. What does this text mean when it says that uh, God is high and lifted up, that He dwells in the high and holy place? Uh, Well, I don't think we're supposed to think of this primarily in spatial terms. What I mean by that is when it says that God is high, I don't think we're supposed to think, well, God dwells roughly 10,000 miles above our heads in some spatial zone in the the, uh, firmament up there. Uh, I don't think that's the idea here. I think it's more like this, and we use this in our language sometimes. If I said to you, brother, sister, I highly esteem you. I highly esteem you. What does that mean? Does it mean that you're taller than me? That I literally look up to you? Well, no. It means that in my affections, in my heart, I hold you in a place of honor, a place of status, a place of respect. In the place of my affections, you are esteemed highly. You're given a special place. Uh, 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 the inverse is true. If I were to say, uh, if, I were, if I were to offend you in some way, and you said, you know, Alex, what you, what you said to me, what you did to me, that was so low of you. Uh, what would you mean? You wouldn't mean that I'm shorter than you, right? You would mean uh, what you did to me was so disrespectful. You didn't accord uh, to me the honor that I was due. It was a, a cruel act, a mean act, a, 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 an act, a, a, a word, a deed that was below the status of dignity that you ought to show to other people. That's kind of the way I think this language is used in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. God is high and lifted up. That means he's in a place of honor. He's in a place of status. He's in a place of dignity, a place of majesty, a place of glory. 
He is in the place of his transcendence. He is beyond us. He is in a place of status. Is he high and lifted up in your heart? Is he given a place of dignity and honor and respect that is beyond all others, far surpassing any earthly creature, any other being in this universe? Our text says that he dwells in that place, the high and holy place, the place of status, the place of glory, the place of majesty. Secondly, we read in our text that God inhabits eternity. See that he's holy, or excuse me, that he's high. Secondly, God inhabits eternity. Now, what could this peculiar phrase mean? Eternity is connected to time, right? And as such, eternity is not a place. If I said I inhabit 3011 Magazine Drive, it's my house, right? I inhabit that place. It's a dwelling. It's a physical, concrete place. How could someone inhabit eternity? Eternity is connected to... How could someone inhabit time? How would you even define time? How would you define eternity? If, if I asked you to come up now one after another and give me your definition of what time is, would you be able to do that? Well, I'm thankful for theologians and for philosophers who have gone before us and sought to make sense of these things. And so I have a definition here from J. Oliver Buswell Jr., who was once the president of Wheaton College, and he seeks to define time and eternity in this way. He clears it up for us here. Quote, time is the mere abstract or ideational possibility of the before and after relationship and durational sequence, and eternity is simply infinite time, that is time so defined and extrapolated in both directions to infinity. So you get it now, right? <laughs> that, cle- that clears it up for you, right? God inhabits eternity. And that means something mysterious and something beyond our comprehension. But at the very least, I think it means that God has eternal life. That He lives forever. And that eternal life belongs to Him. We can only say that He is above or beyond time. And that He is the keeper of time. And that if any of us are to have eternal life, we have to have it in Christ. Who possesses life through the Father. God himself is eternal. He lives forever, and eternal life is in him. And he is the keeper of eternal life and the dispenser of eternal life. That is the very least of what it means that God inhabits eternity. The picture Isaiah is painting is of a God who is high and lifted up in a position of unique status and honor and splendor and glory and who inhabits eternity. But the third characteristic of God's transcendence in our text is that God is holy. His name is holy, and he dwells in the high and holy place. This attribute of all three in our text is probably the most emphasized because it is most closely connected with God's very identity. Isaiah says that his name is holy. God's name is holy. Not that the, the, the letters that we use to, to um, uh, spell out Yahweh are holy letters, but that holy is actually his name. It's attached to his identity, who he is in his person. Holiness is his name, and it is an attribute of God. What does it mean that God is holy? In general, the term refers to a certain separateness of God. We normally speak of holiness in terms of a separateness from sin, but I don't think that's the main idea that Isaiah has for us here in verse 15. I believe he's thinking more along the lines of 
God's separateness in terms of his unapproachableness. Certainly God is separate from sin. Certainly he is without a, a sin or blemish or stain. But God is holy in the sense that he's separate from us. He's in some sense unapproachable. Uh, in some sense beyond us and separate from us. I believe he's thinking more along the lines of God's separateness in terms of his unapproachableness. He's speaking of God's holiness as being distinct from us human beings. I think this because of what was written earlier in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, a a passage that might be familiar to you. I'll ask that you turn there, Isaiah chapter 6. I just want us to look at verses 1 through 3. Just a few pages over from Isaiah 57. Let's turn to Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. This is where... Isaiah receives a vision from God, and he's brought into the throne room, the place where God is high and lifted up. And this is what he says that he saw. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The idea here is that God is separate from us by virtue of his holiness. There's a certain quality of unapproachableness about him. So much so that the seraphim, the, the angels there in God's presence, have to cover their face. There's a sense in which they can't even see God. They don't even want to see God because they know to look at him was in some sense beyond them, that it would destroy them. God was unknowable, unseeable, indescribable, unapproachable. And so they, they're sort of covering their face like they don't even want to see him. They can't see him. They can't bear to look on his majesty and his glory and his holiness. In Revelation, when John receives a similar vision, he falls to the ground in the dust, groveling before the Lord, and he won't even raise his eyes to look at the glory of the Lamb. No one dares approach him. Where is this idea in the popular religious mind? We come into worship chomping on our gum, with our our latte in hand, bustling, moving about, settling to our chairs... Do we, do we think, do we ponder, do we consider, do we reflect on the glory of God, the vision of Isaiah 6, where he dwells in holiness and the high place lifted up beyond us? Do we recognize that he's in that place of unapproachable light and that even the seraphim dare not open their eyes to look at him when they're in the presence of God? 1 Timothy six fifteen through 16 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Are you familiar with that old hymn that's based on this tune? Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the Ancient of Days, Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Are you picking up on the theme of Isaiah 57, 15? God is transcendent. He is above us. He is beyond us. He's high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He is unapproachable. He is incomprehensible. 
Is this your view of God? Do you have a sense of God's majesty and God's transcendence? When you come to Him early in the morning, you bow your head to pray to God. You marked by lofty thoughts of God, high thoughts of God. Do you have any sense of the transcendence of His glory and His majesty? Do you know anything of what it's like for Isaiah, the Apostle John, for the Apostle Paul to talk about how they can't even see God? There's a sense in which they can't even be in His presence. He's so glorious. He's so mighty. He's so majestic. How dare we even approach Him? What is man that you are mindful of Him? The Son of Man that you would take thought of Him. Does that have any entrance into your worship? Does that have any entrance into your view of God? You parents, as you seek to convey to your children who God is and what He's like, do you convey to them the transcendence and the majesty and the glory of God? Do you have a sense that if you were to appear before Him outside of the blood and the righteousness of Christ for but a moment, you'd be incinerated. You'd be wiped out. You dare not stand before the glory of our great God. I hope that these thoughts about God characterize your Christian life and your experience with God. Are you characterized in your view of God by words like gravity, reverence, awe, Or is your characterization of God characterized by words like trite, glib, flippant, small? Do you have lofty thoughts about God? The text that we have here in Isaiah 57, 15 is conveying to us a view of God that is glorious and transcendent and majestic. So what have we seen so far? God dwells first of all in the high and holy place. He is in a place of His transcendent glory a place of profound distance from us. He is unapproachable. He's high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. How on earth can we sinners ever hope to access His presence or be near to Him? Remember Dennis Wise's story? No way was he going to have a relationship with Elvis Presley. Surrounded by throngs of people, Hidden by the walls of Graceland, no way could he ever expect to have a relationship with his icon, with his idol. Are we in a better situation than Dennis Wise? Can we access our God? Or is he beyond us in a way that is unapproachable that we can never access? The wonderful news is that God can be found somewhere else. He dwells in another place also, a place where he can be met and he can be known. God dwells. Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Look again at our text, Isaiah 57, verse 15. I dwell with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Here we want to ask two questions. What is a contrite and lowly spirit? And secondly, why does God dwell with such people? What is a contrite and lowly spirit? Let's start with what it's not, okay? To be contrite... To be humble, to have a lowly spirit, is not really to have uh, low self-esteem. It's not uh, self-loathing. It's not just thinking badly of yourself and hating yourself and thinking you're just the worst person in the world. It's not low self-esteem, self-loathing. The Hebrew word for contrite literally means crushed. 
we would do well to ask, crushed, how? The idea in Scripture of contriteness is that we're crushed by a sense of our sin. We're crushed by a sense of our weakness. We're crushed by a sense of our frailty as human beings. A a contrite and lowly spirit refers to one who has been broken by sin and has a sense of their dependence upon God and has seen the need for repentance. This is someone who feels the weight of their lowliness, the weight of their frailty, the weight of their weakness, and humbly looks to God for help. The Bible says that God is near to such people. And this is a theme that we can trace all throughout the Bible as well. God desires to be close to His people, those who feel their need of God. And look to Him, those who recognize they have no good in themselves, but that they have to look to their God for grace, for help, and for good. Let me read a few texts to you, Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place for my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I think this idea of contrition, lowliness, humility is exactly what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn but they shall be comforted. Jesus is not talking about people who are economically poor, people who have empty pockets, don't have a lot of money. Jesus is talking about people who know spiritual poverty, who recognize that they don't have anything to offer up to God in their good works, but that they depend on Christ for any good. It's like that old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless Look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's a contrite and lowly spirit. I have nothing in my hands. I have nothing in my pockets. I have nothing in my heart to commend me to God. I depend on Christ. And I come to Him in brokenness and contrition and lowliness, admitting my sin, confessing my weakness and my frailty and my humanity, and I look to Him for grace. I look to Him to condescend, to meet my poor estate, to draw near to me. And if there's going to be any good in my life, it's going to come at the hands of God. That's a lowly and a contrite spirit. Someone who recognizes their spiritual poverty. What is it to mourn? If it's not to mourn over our sin, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's like what it says in our text, those who have a broken and contrite spirit, God will come to them and He will revive them. And He will disclose His presence to them, be near to them. During Jesus' ministry, He was primarily concerned to be near to broken people. He didn't want to be near to the self-righteous those who thought they had something by which they could commend themselves to God. He wanted to be near to people who knew they were sinners, who were in need of grace, and who looked to God in utter dependence. He dwelled with the contrite and the lowly. But I want to ask a second question. Why does God dwell with such people? 
Why does God want to dwell with people who are of a broken and contrite spirit? It's not just because they're so great and because they have fantastic personalities and he likes spending time with them and really gets a kick out of being near those who are lowly and contrite. God wants to revive. God wants to bring life. Listen to me. God wants to be near broken and contrite people because he wants to disclose his presence to them. He wants to reveal himself to them. He wants to show them himself. He wants them in the context of their brokenness and their contrition and their felt sense of need to be revived and to be filled and to be given life through the one who possesses life, who inhabits eternity. He wants to give himself to them. He doesn't want to see people grovel in brokenness and contrition and, and kick them while they're down and see people just, just groveling on the floor, feeling a sense of their need and weeping in dust and ashes. God goes to people who come to him in humility and contrition and he brings them up. He revives them. He gives them life. He communicates himself to them and reveals his nature and his character and his love and his grace to them. He does not want to put his people down. He does not want to mock and to jeer at those who are poor in spirit and those who come to him in humility and brokenness. He wants to revive them, to lift them up, and to give them life. But there's perhaps a third question we should ask. How can God dwell with those who are lowly and contrite? I spent the first half of this message talking about God's transcendence, His height, the fact that He's beyond us, the fact that He's high and lifted up and inhabits eternity and He's holy and He's inaccessible to us and even the angels in heaven cover their eyes because they can't look at Him. Now how on earth can sinful men and women like us know Him and access Him and have a sense of His presence and have the audacity to come to Him in prayer with an open face, lifting our hands and talking to Him and making our petitions known to Him. How can we come into a setting like this and expect that He's going to meet with us and that we're going to know something of His presence? If I could say it reverently, how on earth does God get off allowing us into His presence? How can God be accessed by the broken and the contrite Our text actually doesn't tell us how. But hopefully you New Covenant believers already know the answer. If you've read anything about Christ, you know what I'm about to say. The message of the Gospel, and you kids listen to me here, the message of the Gospel is that the great God of glory, the God who's holy, the God who's high and lifted up, the God who created and sustains the whole world, The message of the gospel is that this great God of the universe has come near to sinful men and women in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is his name. Emmanuel. God with us. In Jesus Christ, God sent his son so that he, the great God of creation, could be present with broken, poor and sinful people like us. That's how God can have us in His presence. 
That's how we can access God. That's how we can have hope of being near to Him. The hope that if we come to Him, that we'll actually be received by Him. This is the message of the Gospel. The greatest way by which God expresses His desire to be near to broken and contrite people is through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is transcendent, high, lofty, eternal, and holy. But this great and transcendent God has drawn near to men and women of a broken and contrite spirit through Jesus Christ. God dwelled among men and women. His transcendence and His imminence are most clearly seen in the incarnation and in the cross. In the cross, God kissed a world in love. God drew near to us. He drew near to sinful men and women. And He said, I will make my dwelling place man. I will be with them. I will be their God. And they will be my people. And the message of the Gospel is that if you come to Him in contrition and in repentance and in humility, wonder of wonders, He'll disclose Himself to you. He'll reveal Himself to you. He'll be near to you and He'll be your God. And you can talk to Him as plainly as you could come up here and talk to me after the service. You could come to Him in the context of your bedroom. And you could lift your hands to heaven and make your prayers known and expect that He'll hear you. And that you could commune with Him and that you could know something of His presence. I have three points of application in closing. Three points of application, and I'll be very brief. First two are to those of you who profess to be Christians, and the last one is to those of you who do not. First of all, to the Christians here, let us seek a balanced perspective of God's transcendence and God's imminence. God's imminence is His his nearness. Let's seek a balanced perspective. When you go to God in prayer, we ought to have high thoughts of God, lofty thoughts of God. There is a sense in which there should be fear and trembling when we come to God. And yet we should have a sense of intimacy and familiarity and nearness through what God has done in Christ. And in your view of God, seek balance Read often those texts about God's glory and His transcendence and His majesty. And read often about His nearness and His desire to be close to sinful men and women through the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who come to Him in repentance and faith. As you convey to your children what God is like, pursue balance. Tell them about the God who is transcendent. Tell them about the God who is near. And y'all, I'll just say... As we're planting a church together and and we're seeking to select songs for our worship services and organize our worship services and order them, uh, we want to pursue in our worship services a place for God's transcendence. And we want to pursue a sense of His nearness with us. And so our hope is that the songs that we sing will maintain a sense of God's loftiness and His greatness and His majesty and His might. And that also they'll convey a sense of His nearness to us through Christ. And that we'll seek expression in our worship services for awe and for majesty and for sobriety and solemnity and gravity. And at the same time, we'll seek the expression of joy and exuberance and intimacy with Christ in the context of our worship services. Let's pursue balance. And let's test our hearts tonight. Have we erred on one side or the other? Do we treat God as if He's just our our buddy, our boy, our friend? Uh, that we just waltz in and hang out with Him and, 
casually, just whenever we want, communicate with Him without framing our thoughts about Him? Is that, is that where you are tonight? Or are you in a place on the opposite extreme of thinking, I, I can't ever approach God. He's so great and I'm so sinful, there's no way I can even talk to Him. I don't even have a right to pray to Him. I don't even have a right to ask Him for grace and for help because I'm so sinful and so weak and so frail and He's just so great. Well, that's wrong. Because God wants to be near to you if you'll come to Him in, holy, in, in, in contrition and in lowliness. And so let's avoid either extreme and pursue balance by seeking God's transcendence and His imminence. Secondly, you Christians pursue a lowly and contrite posture before the Lord because it's there that God will meet you. Pursue a lowly and contrite posture before the Lord because it's there that God meets you. God only dwells in two places. He dwells in the high and holy place and he dwells with him or her who is of a humble and contrite spirit and there is no middle ground. You can't approach the high and holy place. And let me tell you, you don't want to be there. You wouldn't last a second in the face of such glory. The only place where you could approach Him and find Him is in the place of contrition and lowliness and humility. Don't despise that posture. Pursue that posture. Pursue repentance. Pursue lowliness. Pursue humility. Pursue a sense of your dependence. Pursue what the hymn writer has said. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's a good place to be. And there is no middle ground. Don't try to come to God on the basis of your works. That's the middle ground. Don't try to come to God on the basis of your record this week. That's the middle ground. He won't meet you there. Don't come to Him in the posture of self-righteousness. He will despise you there. But if you come to Him in humility, with an awareness of your brokenness and your need, He loves to meet you there. And He'll reveal Himself to you in that context. Perhaps you're familiar with James chapter 4, verse 6. But God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We say that all the time, right? God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Verse 7 of James 4 says this, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So let's put them together. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we're to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Resist is used twice. It's the same word in the English language, same word in the Greek language. And here's the connection I draw. The same sort of animus that God feels towards those who are prideful is the same animus we're supposed to feel towards Satan. If you were in my office and I was counseling you and I was encouraging you, brother, sister, you need to flee Satan. You need to resist him. What sort of things would I be telling you to do? I'd say, you should abhor Satan. You should pray against Satan. You should not go where Satan goes. You should avoid those who are influenced by Satan. Uh, You should avoid temptation. You should resist Satan. Get away from him at all costs. Get serious and resist the devil if you want him to flee from you. God behaves that way toward those who are proud. The same word is used. He resists the proud. He will stiff-arm them. He will push them away. He will withhold himself from those who are prideful. I can't imagine a more horrifying thought than being resisted by God. 
Brothers and sisters, if we're marked by pride, God will resist us. But he gives grace to the humble. And so why would you not want to pursue that posture of contrition and of lowliness and humility? God will meet you there, reveal himself, and give you grace. He, he will not resist you. He only resists the proud. But go to him in humility, and he'll meet you there, and he'll reveal himself to you. Thirdly and finally, I'd like to say something to you who are not Christians, not professing Christians. And the application is this from Isaiah 57, 15. I have the joy, the privilege, the pleasure of telling you that you can know God. Remember that analogy about that guy, Dennis Wise, that funny man who's standing outside of the walls of Graceland and he climbed up just to get a glimpse of Elvis Presley? I mean, what a, what a silly thing. He couldn't get close to Elvis. There were always throngs of people around him. There were always fans everywhere. He'd go to concerts and he'd press in and try to see him. And he, he couldn't do it because there were always too many people. And he'd, he'd even stand up on the, the walls outside his house just to get a peek, maybe a glimpse of Elvis. Maybe he could see him through the window, walking into the kitchen or something. And he, he could never get a glimpse. Well, kids... There are no walls with God. It's not like there are throngs of people you've got to push past just to get a sight of Him. You can know God. You can draw near to Him. And if you come to Him in repentance and faith, you could have a relationship with God. And the truth of the Bible is He wants to have a relationship with you. And that if you would just come to Him in humility and in contrition and in repentance, and if you would put your trust in Him, God will have a relationship with you. That man, Dennis Wise, couldn't know Elvis Presley, but you can know God. The God who created the world and sustains it by the power of His hand. The God who sent Jesus Christ into the world, His Son, to redeem people like you. You can know God. There are no walls in your ways, in your way. No barriers. You don't have to push past people to get to Him. You could get on your knees tonight and cry out to Him in humility and in repentance, and He'll hear you. You'll get to know him. I can remember I was probably Dean's age, maybe a little bit older. And um, I lived in South Florida. And I remember going to the Florida Marlins fan day. And I remember sitting in right field. And we got there really early. And I ran to the right field wall there. And um, the Marlins players were signing autographs. There was one person I came there to see. One person. And it wasn't Billy the Marlin. Okay. It was Gary Sheffield. Man, he was a stud. I mean, he was, he was awesome. He's the best player we had on our team. And I remember Gary Sheffield was standing in center field, and here I was with my hat and my ball and everything, and my little marker. I'm Gary! Gary! And I think I got Jeff Conine's autograph. And I remember being so sad. I cried the whole way home. I was so disappointed. He was my hero, my icon and I'm crying out to him and he didn't hear me and I never got to meet him and I was so sad and so disappointed it's not that way with God if you cry out to him he'll hear you if you come to him in weakness and frailty and pursue him he'll hear you and he'll reveal himself to you and it'll be wonderful you can know God And that is the message I have the joy, 
of sharing with you tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that the gospel was not given to us in order to bring about low thoughts of God, but rather our view of you and your greatness and your glory is elevated by what you've done through Christ. That you, the majestic God of the universe, would draw nearer to us through your Son. It is beyond comprehension. It is so wonderful to us. We thank you that you've made a way that sinful men and women can know you. That we could come into your presence in a setting like this and raise our voices to you and not be afraid of judgment and condemnation, but to know that you actually want to hear from us. You who know the number of hairs on our head. You who know the number of the days that we will live. You who measure our heartbeats, our creator. You want to be known by us. You want to enter into relationship with us. Thank you for this truth. We pray that for generations to come, from the worship services of Emmanuel Church and the lives of the members of this church through the preaching of this church, that always these two attributes of you, our Father, will be proclaimed in faithfulness and in boldness, that God is transcendent and glorious, and that He is near to His people and desires to be close to redeem men and women, those who call on His name in humility and contrition. We pray that each one of us here would pursue that posture that we'd be in the place of lowliness, the place of repentance, the place of contrition, and that we would meet you there and know your presence there. Please bless us with your nearness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, let's take...